When the band Nirvana turned the underground music world upside down and the word alternative was appropriated by the mainstream, most of us who had been quietly following the sequence of events were kind of left feeling cheated. Seemingly overnight, people were trading in their hairspray for flannel. It was a little too rushed to seem genuine, and it all made for a giant eye roll. At least that's what I ended up continuously doing from 1991 to about 1994. When I stopped to take a breather, I noticed that the music landscape had shifted, and up arose the garage rock scene of the early to mid-90s, a direct reaction to the suburban angst of Nirvana knockoffs. A rock and roll homage with punk rock sensibilities that sometimes bordered on send-up, 90s garage rock employed 50s and 60s pop culture references mixed with the Stones, the Stooges, Link Ray, The Ventures, Lucha Libre, Motorcycles, Brill Cream, and Pompadours. It reveled in trash and kitsch, exactly the opposite of what was being sold to the MTV Much Music Alternative Nation as edgy and subversive. It was coast to coast. It was global. Everyone from Reverend Beatman in Switzerland, Tiger Man in Portugal, and Guitar Wolf in Japan. For me, someone who loved and missed the pomp and pageantry of rock and roll, but with budget DIY prices, it was too savory a scene not to get messed up in. And lucky for me, being born and raised in Toronto, Canada, the city housed a music scene that seamlessly took to this garage rock trend going back as far as the mid-80s to the early 90s with seminal surf punk band Shadowy Men on a Shadowy Planet, who only finally admitted they were a surf band just last year, by the way, and to 90s bands like The Stinkies, The Sadies, Sucker Punch, The Knuckle Dusters, Teen Crud Combo, The Violent Brothers, The Deadly Snakes, Rugburn, Locust Eater, and Satan's Archenemy God, and my favorite Toronto garage punk band, the Leather Uppers. Couple this with Toronto being a mere four-hour drive away from Detroit Rock City, and you had the makings of a bomb blast. Detroit's garage scene reverberated around the world with bands like the White Stripes, the Electric Six, the Von Bondies, the Go, the Detroit Cobras, the Demolition Doll Rods, the Dirt Bombs, and of course, the Gories. But with the eventual overground success of the White Stripes, the fervent garage rock scene sputtered until its eventual sidestep into the passing lane. There's still a garage scene out there today, albeit further underground than before. Call it intuition or concede to hindsight, but we must have sensed the writing on the wall when we were definitely altering our sound to fit a more hard rock mold. This enabled us to skirt around the garage rock implosion and move on to more overground pastures. Still, when I run into someone who is involved in that scene, I reminisce with rose-colored glasses, regardless of the criticisms I might have had about it. And so I did a double take when I met Mike Alonzo, drummer for Flogging Molly in Croatia at the In Music Festival this past summer and he mentioned he used to drum for the Electric Six and Bantam Rooster. I hadn't heard the name Bantam Rooster in a long time, 
the Michigan garage rock duo that blazed through the mid to late 90s with the fury of contemporaries like the the Revelators, the Bassholes, the immortal Lee County Killers, and of course, the Leather Uppers. When Mike and I ran into each other again a few weeks later at the Southside and Hurricane Festivals in Germany, we delved a little further into each other's garage rock pasts, and it became fairly evident, at least to me, that a podcast needed to happen. Mike mentioned they would be touring with Volbeat at the end of the summer, and as luck would have it, I was headed to Copenhagen later at the end of August to sing one song with Volbeat at Parkin Stadium. It was a song called Black Rose that garnered the band a number one in America, and the show in Parkin set records for the most attended rock show in Denmark by a Danish band. I was happy and honored to take part in the event, and very glad when I found out Flogging Molly would be main support. Having the garage rock scene be the seed of this podcast episode, it's very fitting to have Volbeat be its backdrop. The most successful rock band of the Scandinavian rock revival that started in the 90s with bands like The Helicopters, and was very much a part of the garage rock scene around that time. Seeing that I would have just one song to sing that night, my day was pretty free and open to do just about anything. I spent it mostly with the other guests brought in for the evening, namely Mille Petroza from Creator and Barney Greenway from Napalm Death. Lars Ulrich was there, and he was really nice too. So, hunkered down somewhere in the backstage area of Parkin, after soundcheck, is where and when this podcast took place. Even though we lived only a few hours away, it took the power of Flogging Molly, Volbeat, and Croatian and German festivals to bring Mike and I together. But here we are, finally talking shop, talking music. I want to mention that during the episode, I'm struggling to remember John Spencer's band with the guitarist from Speedball Baby, and that band was called, of course, Heavy Trash. Anyways, you'll figure it out once you hear it. I want to say thanks to Blue Mic Microphones and Skull Candy Headphones for supporting the podcast. Thanks to Chino Locos Restaurants for being delicious, because when I want a fish burrito, I want it stuffed with chow mein noodles. Extra thanks to the Volbeat guys, the Volbeat crew, Q Prime Management for treating all of us splendidly. Mike Alonzo of Bantam Rooster, Christ Punchers, Speedball, The Electric Six, and of course, Flogging Molly is this episode's guest, and it starts n- now. The Tango Joe's Pockets is the best around. Nick Flanagan is Tango's crew of Dello for free. I'm Zach Lennon, I just hope to. Jimmy in from Flockto, stop playing Hangto, do! I got to know Danko a few years ago when I used my vacation time to follow the band on the road. And I even spent a day with Danko in some... European town that escapes me, but we ended up talking about 17th century art, his pet rock collection, <laughs> the summers he spent as a teenage air traffic controller, his venomous snake collection, his passion for planking, and the night he spent with Ringo Starr's housekeeper. He's a fascinating character with a wealth of stories to share, and I'm a huge fan of Danko, but a bigger fan of his stories. When the weather is bad and there's nothing much to do Take a listen, would you now, to what Danko Jones would do It's the middle of the night and you better do it fast Turn the speakers up loud for Danko's podcast Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls 
get ready because the Danko Jones podcast starts. Yeah! Um, Mike, how you doing, man? This is great to be playing with you, kind of playing with you at this show in Copenhagen. It's true. Um, the special guest, well, one of the special guests. Yes, I have been flown in as a special guest uh, to the Parkin Volbeat show in Copenhagen, the ho- their hometown gig. This is apparently going to set records. Massive. I know, like, what, 45,000 people or something? Insane like that? I was actually given 48,000. Touche. I mean, yeah, I, I mean, let, come on. Uh, 3,000 more people make a huge difference in the retelling of this story that true you story. Pl- yeah, true story that you played this one gig um, that broke records. Um, but Flogging Molly is on tour with Volbeat, and uh, to me, that makes sense uh, when I hear that. Um, but how's it been? When you guys, you're like three shows in, right? So how's it been with the Volby crowd? Um, I mean, the first two shows were absolutely incredible. And uh, yeah, I don't know. It's it's great even seeing little comments of like, you know, never heard the band. You've won a new fan. Like even just little things like that really matter. I think it's it's so exciting and crazy and awesome. I love it. Now, speaking of the band, Flogging, I mean, the last time I checked in with Flogging, before this past summer, you weren't in the band. You're the newest member. But we toured with Flogging Molly in 2005. And uh, we met each other in, uh, I think it was Croatia, right? That's where the first gig this past summer was. And then the Southside Hurricane, we got to talking, and I didn't know that you were... You're from the Detroit area. And a fan of yours. Which, which is, <laughs> thank you for that. And um, uh, we kind of know the same bands, the same people, just being four hours away from each other. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so what? what is your connection with the Detroit garage rock, garage punk scene? Yeah, I mean... Uh... I didn't realize we knew that many mutual bands. Like the late 90s when I was drumming with uh, this band Bantam Rooster and Mm -hmm. part of that whole scene of Through the Gold Dollar in Detroit and Toronto and everything that I know that, you know, everyone we were even talking about at that festival and just, yeah, I've been playing a long time. But as a view, you know? Yeah, it's funny because when you do these podcasts, the the tendency is to talk to... Talk before the mics get roll to get turned on, and then when they get turned on, there's nothing to talk about. But it was our conversation about all these garage bands that like made me just go, "Wait a minute, that would be great to like have them on, and we can just talk about these two scenes." That I think it was like in the mid, it well, it was around, but then in the mid '90s, it or early '90s to mid '90s. Garage rock really just kind of took off as an underground scene, and then it kind of died out with with the ascension of the White Stripes and the Hives. They kind of like took it overground, and then, I don't know. It was just kind of this mass understanding uh, wasn't spoken about that everybody just kind of moved on, which was really weird to me. We did in a sense too because we altered our sound. 
um, to make it more hard rock. So we got rid of all the garage rock trappings in a way and just embraced hard rock music. But there's always bands like you are very well connected with a band that went overground for a while, the Electric Six. Yeah, for 11 years I played with them. Everything but the first big record with Gay Bar and Danger High Voltage and stuff. I think that was my first question to you. Electric Six, were you on Gay Bar? Yeah, I mean, they asked me to do the sessions for that record, but I had a a gig that night in Toledo, Ohio, and they were recording the drum tracks in Detroit. So if I only didn't have a gig, I'd have been on every record, but I'm on the second record on. Right, right. But yeah, I mean, 11 years, great band, just so much fun and energy and I miss those guys by the way and they're still doing it right yeah yeah constantly touring playing I mean UK runs once a year and yeah they're still busy we played with the electric six in a few festivals in like 03 04 in Europe just before I joined so, yeah. so you weren't in that band so no. we didn't play Okay. No, I recorded in 04, and my first gigs were like the very beginning of 05. So still a while ago, but just before you guys were uh, rocking the stage, the same stage as us. So, yeah. But So so your connection to our band, not to make it about me, but... It's your podcast. Yeah. <laughs> but um, did you know of us because we were from Toronto, or was it because like from the back door through from Europe and stuff? Yeah, I kind of always saw the name and always, I don't know, it always kind of clicked where I didn't even know you were actually Canadian for a while. I thought it was a European band because a bunch of people in England, when I'd come over, they're like, I'm really into the new Danko Jones record. I'm like, oh, I have to check it out. So I kind of was introduced to your stuff right around when I first started playing with Electric Six. Like, there's big fans in England for you guys, obviously, but... Yeah, and that's when I got turned on to the older stuff, and I even found the Canada-only best of, and uh, started. I started from that, and then started getting everything, and dig the band. So, but because you're from the Detroit area, did you know other, like, Toronto garage bands, like the Leather Uppers, the Stinkies? Yeah, a little bit. We never... I think Bantam Rooster played up in Canada, mm-hmm. and Electric Six, uh, both times before I joined both bands. So, like, I never did a whole lot of shows in Canada other than previous to Bantam Rooster when I was in this kind of, like, hard rock kind of metal band, Speedball. We did shows, Canadian tours with uh, the Headstones and Barstool Prophets, and we did a tour with Motorhead through all of Canada once, too, and then they liked us and kept bringing us out on the road. We did a full American tour and then a German tour in 96. And With Motorhead. Yeah. That was, that was you know, other than doing all the stuff I'm doing now, that was definitely... Electric 6 was great and everything, but that was a giant highlight to watch Motorhead 46 times in my lifetime. Yeah. Within two and a half years, it was fucking stellar, you know? Yeah. I think now my memory is being jogged <clears throat> that... The distinction must be made. It's not Speedball Baby, right? And I think they might have they sh- they put Baby at the end because of you guys, right? I think just so. To, to yeah, I don't know. I mean, we had the album out first, but I think they got more recognition. But like the hard rock people definitely know the Speedball years a bit. Right. But yeah, I mean, they did well too. What's the John Spencer connection with Speedball Baby? Is there one? Yeah, the guitar player uh, and Spencer did that 
um, duo band that's now escaping me. Like flat duo jets? Or no? no, when when Spencer kind of put the blues explosion on hold, the guitarist from Speedball Baby and Spencer did, oh, God, oh, what's yeah. it called? It was the two of them. Anyways, that was the project that... Um, you can edit that out. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that's the connection between Speedball Baby and Blues Explosion. But Speedball Baby also opened for Spencer a lot of times. Too. Okay. That would make so, sense, too. Yeah. Okay. And I think they're on the same label as the Chrome Cranks. Remember that band? Yes, the Chrome Cranks? I do. So, yeah. Yep. Yep. So, so, so there's all that. But being from Detroit again, um, there's a, for me as a fan... Um, of the scene, there's like a there's one band that like hovers above all the rest, and that's the Gories, yeah. who have recently reunited, right? Yeah. Um, so you do you, is there a connection between you and 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 the Gories or or, or or the Dirt Bombs or anything like? A little bit, yeah. I mean, I know Mick fairly well, and uh, the bass player Troy Gregory, that's been on and off with him for years. I've known since elementary school, and. Uh, yeah, actually, there's even, when Bantam Rooster was kind of on hiatus for a little while, the guitar player Tom Potter joined the Dirt Bombs for a record and a single or something, and there's definitely a connection, but right. I've never played with them, but I we'd, we've done some shows, and I know all those those cats. They're, yeah. they're great, yeah. The, the only reason why I ask is because, to me, the Gories are this, like, they almost legend. Yeah, like, it's all, they're almost mythic to me, yeah. even though... You know, they're they're all on Instagram and Twitter. <laughs> you right. know what I mean? But um, just the band itself, they're just so mythic to me that, you know, any kind of... The reunion is kind of... It's kind of weird to me. It's kind of like, you know, the, 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 the curtains on The Wizard of Oz have been, you know, opened. And I'm just... I don't necessarily want to see the reunion. But yeah. if they... I think they did play Toronto. But if I was in town, I would go see that. Yeah. I've been out of town every time they've played Detroit. So, I, same thing. I would have went. But I would pray it would be as exciting as it was in, say, 96 or whatever it was. Yeah. You know, But I've, I've heard nothing but great things. So, I bet it was great. Yeah. Because for me, like, you know... Um, House rocking and and I know you find like those records are so just good. staring at the cover. It's yeah. like it's probably the last time I did anything like that, where I was mesmerized by the look and image of the band yeah. and married it so well with the music. And we've played shows with Mick and the Dirt Bombs in the past and stuff, and it it's amazing to play with him and it's cool and everything, but it's still just like wow. So uh, tell me about the Gories, <laughs> you know? Exactly. Uh, yeah, I'm doing it to you too. Like, oh man, you're in Flogging Molly. Wait, well, you're from Detroit, so the Gories. Tell me about them. I wish I could say I've seen them, <laughs> but you know, nothing but great things from everybody and. I still see Dan Croha, Danny Dalrod around mm-hmm. town, and his new project's really good. And yeah, you know, they're all still going. So I mean, now you're in this. You're playing stadiums. Let's, for, you know, like now you're playing stadiums. And when we played together in Croatia, it was definitely uh, flogging Molly, and then there's some other musical um, projects before them. Because when you guys stepped on stage, the whole fucking place just filled up. Um, so this is a, a great gig to, 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 to do. 
how did you uh, go, go, being you know in the Electric Six Bantam Rooster? What is the connection between that and flogging Molly? It seems like it's almost two different worlds. Yeah, uh, it actually goes back to the real early '90s, late '80s, early '90s, where uh, Dave had a band that he reluctantly wants to talk about, but since I'm in the band now, he'll bring it up and talk to people about Fastway? <clears throat> the one after Fastway, oh, okay. this band, Katmandu, that uh, right after Fastway, we did one record together and, yeah, toured the world, and the whole grunge thing kind of killed the whole hard rock thing at the time, and uh, plus, at the time, not to go on about that, but when the the band uh, had the record on Columbia, like CBS, Epic Records and everything. And when Sony bought out CBS, they just cleaned house and fired everyone. And everyone's, you know, the guy that signed you and everyone in the label changed hands. So you weren't cared about anymore. So it just went down the tank. That's a common yeah, yeah. nightmare story. But we kept in touch. And after the band kind of broke up, uh, he had a solo deal where I helped him on demos for like a Dave King solo record that he was going to do that I think in time he just decided he didn't even want to do that even though they came out really good he just wanted to do you know the straight up traditional more Irish sounding thing and you know he went with his heart and it really paid off you right. know um, okay let's go back to Katmandu so oh boy. <laughs> your, your connection with Dave, uh, because it, it was a hard rock thing and Fastway was a, it's all still hard rock at this point. How did he even connect with you for Katmandu? Uh, he had a, just a few drummer auditions and it was a real like person who, you know, kind of, you know, there's this band that's looking for a drummer and I just moved to LA like, you know, October of 88 and, Went to the audition and got the call back and got the gig, you know, luckily. Wow. And so we've been friends. Like, I met him in Fastway years before that, and I don't think he even remembers it, just like backstage, whatever, you know. And and then just being in the band with him, he doesn't remember it, which is funny. But, I mean, we've been friends forever, and we've kept in touch throughout the years of, you know, that band fizzling and you know, my stuff happening at home and we'd always keep in touch on the road. And, and then him and Bridget bought a house in Detroit, which started oh, up the Detroit connection okay. and, yeah. you know, the rest of is luck and history, I guess. So from LA and Kathmandu, <clears throat> you obviously moved back to Detroit. Yeah. The speedball band formed in Detroit. It was a bunch of Detroiters with one LA guy and we decided to move back to Detroit and I reluctantly went. I kind of loved living in L.A., but in hindsight, I did the right thing because we ended up getting hooked up with Motorhead's management and then did three tours with them, yeah, so yeah, it was right. definitely worth doing. But that's, yeah, yeah, that's awesome. Um, so, uh, so, you, so Dave, just, Dave just called you up when the slot needed to be filled yeah. kind of thing. He, he kind of told me about it a few years back when it was starting to get bad and, you know, kept me in mind after all these years. And, yeah, I feel really lucky and grateful for this. I mean, we're still friends. Like, I've known him <clears throat> probably longer than anyone else in this band, even though I haven't been in it very long. I'm yeah. like the new old guy in the band, right. you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, uh, yeah, I don't know. 
just to know that he kept me in mind after all these years, what a guy and what a friend, you know. And and flogging is is an interesting troop. I mean, there's how many seven people, yeah. seven people, and in, in, in and that's not something I'm very used to. I'm just used to three people, right, or two other people. If I was, you know, the way you, I see the world. Yes. So um, I've always wondered that about big, huge kind of bands, and to me, that's huge. Seven people in a band. So that's a lot of people to sell on a new guy. Yeah, yeah you know? exactly. So. That's where I was leading to. Like, how, <clears throat> you know, it's easy to bring in the drummer in our band. Like, uh, it's just we have a quick one-on-one, and then we go nay or yay. So how was the vetting process with you? Did you get hazed or what? what? You mean as far as like getting set back up with this band? Yeah, like when you when you know you kind of joined and like was there some sort of? I was, yeah. The whole band flew to the Detroit area, and Dave pretty much said that I'm the new drummer, but you have to play for everyone. And I was like, mm-hmm. like really? So learned all the songs and whatever, and. Uh, had some drinks with the band the night before, kept it in check, and then showed up at the rehearsal space the next day. And, you know, I think I played pretty well, and there was smiles, and everyone was, like, you know, reluctant at first, but then, like, all right, I think we got this. So luckily it all worked out, and, yeah, I am a lucky and grateful man. How long has it been? Uh, Almost two years. It'll be two years in October. I think. Ah, okay, okay, cool, man. And uh, so, yeah, now you're out with Volbeat. I mean, this is a band that, I mean, the first band is Amorphous. Um, they've taken out fucking everyone from Iced Earth to, to uh, was it, Tiger Army? And uh, I, I mean, the, the, Michael's taste runs the gamut. And uh, luckily for you guys, it, it tilts over to Flogging Molly. Yeah. Uh, for me, on paper, Flogging Molly and Volbeat make complete sense. But because Volbeat are so huge, they cover such a vast demographic of people. And uh, it's been good so far, right? Oh, yeah. yeah. I was kind of leery at first. Like, the first show went over pretty well, you know, but it was it was kind of a harder crowd to kind of win over, but... Three quarters of the way through, there were smiles and people knew the words. And then the second show, the Berlin gig, like, I couldn't believe it was instant acceptance. People knew the words. Like, two pits broke out on either side of the barrier in the middle. I'm like, all right, I think we're going to... At first, I was just like, man, I hope these shows go over good. But it's it's going great. And that second show really sold me. I'm like, this is a blast. So tonight's a crazy show because uh, we were talking the guest performers. I'm one of them, but... That's right. Uh, yeah. Uh, there's, I mean, there's other people h- higher up on the totem pole, like Barney Greenway from Napalm Death, uh, Millet Petroza from Creator. King Diamond was supposed to, but he, uh, he's, uh, yeah, he's, he's been sidelined. But um, in his place is Lars Ulrich. I mean, we can talk about this because this isn't airing till, oh, yeah. an, uh, you know, weeks after this night takes place. So as a drummer, <laughs> uh, are you psyched? Yeah, it's going to be great. I I haven't seen him, or I actually haven't spoke to him in the 80s uh, since I, I was a huge fan right when they started, and 
I even drove to Chicago to see the Kill 'Em All tour. Oh, okay. And saw the Ride the Lightning tour at least yeah. three, four times. Met the whole band. They were all really cool. Signed all my stuff and whatever. And I've actually only seen Metallica probably maybe three other times since then. Like once Master of Puppets, once Injustice, and I have not seen them since. But still a fan. And uh, yeah, it's gonna be it's great. You know, I hope I even bump into him at some point somewhere, or at least he, you know, watches from so, at least a song yeah, right, from somewhere right, and goes, right. "Who's that asshole?" You know, <laughs> right, something right. like that. Never uh, know. Will you have the balls to say uh, "Nice to see you again"? Yeah, from I, and then he's he's gonna he give it what? Never remember from Kill 'Em All, the, the Kill 'Em All. Yeah, tour. you know, Broadway Jacks in Chicago. <laughs> Come on, dude. Like he he may even remember that, but the probably gig, not yeah. meeting me no, no, or no. absolutely not. No. I always find I it there. I always find it funny when people go up to me and they're like, "Hey, man, remember me?" Like, "Hey, I was that one dude." Yeah, and it's, talking about the thing. It's, it was always this one <laughs> dude who passed me by, or you know, it's it's funny not to be like, oh. I have so many people but it's funny how people i just you, i have a very bad memory when it comes to to name uh to names and faces the face helps the name on its own half the time i'm old yeah i mean if you got a tattoo on your face sure. I'll, I'll 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 remember you oh yeah but uh yeah if if there's nothing on your person that sticks out if we say hi to each other for like 15 seconds i can't be expected to remember. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, it's, I think it's cool that he's here. I think it's, uh, fucking heavy. Till I was already here today eating lunch. Like what? Lars is here. That's nuts. I had no idea. We, we walked into, we were shown into our backstage area and the backstage, our room says guest performers. And then right beside it, all it said was Lars on the, on the, on the door. So I immediately go, is it Lars Ulrich? And, Someone was saying, no, no, I think it's like this Dan- other Danish local musician guy or there's so-and-so. It might be. Could very well be. And then I took a peek on the set list and then it said, you know, enter Sandman Lars in brackets. And I'm like, no shit. And wow. whether he approves or not or anything, I might get in trouble. But I was told I could. So I only did it with permission. But I sat on his drum stool and took a photo. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Kind of have right. to. I mean, I'm an old school fan as well. Back from, I mean, I got into them uh, during Master of Puppets, and uh, then you know, Cliff passed away. So that was around the time I was getting into it and Ride the Lightning as well. And I remember when Ride the Lightning was out. I remember this girl. She she was a rocker, and she goes, "You should listen to Metallica. You would love them." And uh, and I was like. Hmm, but they don't. I've never seen their music video. <laughs> so uh, yeah, so that was uh, people don't people forget that oh, uh, pre pre like there was there was a reason why you know everybody was so into this band because they had said no to videos, yeah. and that at the time was like so punk rock to do during the midst in the midst of the video explosion like it was the fucking most badass thing to ever fucking do I know. and i think people have forgotten that about them and and what they stood for i'm surprised they waited that long like i mean i remember seeing iron maiden videos in yeah, 81 Jesus of like Priest. yeah waiting to see the song 
killers or Wrathchild, I mean, from like you know the Paul Diano years, yeah. sitting through a million Flock of Seagulls videos and stuff, and yeah, just they waited another like four or five years or later than that. One was the first video, and yeah. that was what eighty seven, eighty eight. Yeah, or, yeah, maybe it was eighty nine. Well, I remember so there's a video show in Toronto, a local show called Toronto Rocks, and they would play music videos for half an hour at 4 o'clock after school. Mm-hmm. And I remember seeing, like, um, was it Women in Uniform? Yeah. And then I saw, uh, I think it was Run to the Hills or something. I'm like, did the singer grow his hair? Like, look, <laughs> yeah. he doesn't even look the same, you know, so... Yeah, I knew Iron Maiden way before I knew Metallica yeah. because of music videos. Right, exactly. And that is why, like Metallica, were so. When, once I got, once I got up to speed with the band, I was like, "This is the most badass band in the world." They're like telling the man to fuck off with these music videos. That's what made them so cool to me. Yeah, I know. I was a big music, like metal cassette demo trading music nerd growing up of just, you know, getting the, the Voivod original demos and just stuff like that. I was part of the trading community. You still have that? I do somewhere, yeah. I have them in a box that I don't even think my cassette player works anymore, but I still have all that stuff, like snail, ma- snail mail trades online yeah. with other metal nerds. Like, yeah. Uh, now with the cassette explosion... Uh, or not? Ex- I shouldn't use the word explosion. Resurgence, Resurgence is the more more the word. But even that is too much. But there's people like like younger kids who are reveling in cassettes and 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 I don't I can't tell if it's just something to show off on Instagram or furniture or, or I just do not believe that people really buy it to listen to. And yet I've been vocal about it online and like. People who have cassette labels have come after me on it. And I'm thinking, do your patrons really listen to your product? Like, right. there's just no way that's, that happens. Like, I agree. The most disposable format there is where the cassette gets mangled. Yeah. Well, there goes the songs I just bought. You know, unless it comes with a digital download, that's cassette-only labels just boggle my mind. I don't Nobody get it. understands people who are pro-cassette in 2017 do not understand what a pencil is yeah. to a cassette. I, 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 they don't understand, like, spending eight bucks of, like, your hard-earned money when you're a kid and just having the... The worst is when you buy it, you bought a cassette and it was warped to begin with. Yeah. It was a bad batch. Right. The pressure pad was gone yeah. and it didn't even play. Yeah, that, it was a bad batch. That yeah. was the worst. Like this oh, yeah. is, I even remember the albums or the cassettes that I bought where it really was low grade quality. Nobody n- understands that. Yeah. It's more about the product and the retro, like, look, I have retro. it on cassette, you know, yeah. but does it really sound that good? And. Yeah, I would I would think if it comes with a digital download, they listen to that and just kind of, you know, have pictures of them holding the cassette and whatever or or just for collecting purposes. I guess that's cool, but I've never been a big cassette guy. Collecting like I don't get yeah, that that veers off into a whole thing about collecting that I just don't get either. No. It's like you there has to be um you know, the, the whatever it is that you collect has to be put in use to me yeah. somehow. It just can't be for decoration. But um, when it comes to music, uh, but your cassettes, all these tape trading cassettes that you have, um, 
that's real. Like that's that's real to me. Like those cassettes, that's real. Like yeah. so, what do you think about Metallica releasing the Kill 'Em All uh, to uh, uh, No Life to Leather demo for Record Store Day? They did that, I think. Oh, I didn't like even. It was know. a reissue of the cassette. <clears throat> really? Yeah. A what on cassette? Yeah, it was on cassette. Uh, I did not even know they did that. I uh, have a I have a CD of dubious origin of that that I've had for a long time. But no, I didn't know. I wonder if it's even better quality. Hmm. I may have to seek that out. Mm, yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Right. Even though I won't be able to listen to it because my cassette player's dead. But anyway. So yeah, like I would like the digital download of yeah. the reissue cassette of No Life to Leather. That I would be interested in because I got, I too got the No Life to Leather demo, but it wasn't. It wasn't with the official cassette sticker or anything. It was just like 14th generation dub. Yeah, exactly. Real hissy. and On a Memorex tape. That's, right. You know, one more plane, <clears throat> it's going to unravel somewhere. Yeah. Yeah, so I got that. Um, but yeah, that's so they've embraced it in a way, too. And I don't, I don't know what to think about that. Like, because I was so anti-cassette, like modern-day anti-cassette. And then they did that, and I was like... Right. Fuck, do I want it or not? Like, I didn't know where I stood on it. I probably still won't I buy it. I mean... I will buy it, but... I'm glad I bought the albums that I bought back then when I did, because, you know, I had the vinyl, I took really good care of it, it's still in, like, pristine condition, and, you know, I got the use out of it, and now those same records are, like, 50, 60 bucks, and I bought them for whatever they were new, which, you know... I love records now, and I think it's cool, but they're just so... I know it's a limited pressing and a different age for vinyl, but, man, they just cost so much these days, you know? It's just, it's, yeah, reissues to me, I don't... I've bought a few reissues, but I bought them only because I, like, I just want to buy them. Yeah, like, I, I just I was going to buy... But uh, for collecting purposes, I don't really feel like... Sh- yeah, like, I don't know about reissues for collecting, but then again... Speaking about Metallica, again, they reissued these box sets, Kill Em All and Ride the Lightning. Now, I've been very tempted to buy them. Um, do you have them? I don't. I I have the original albums and the CDs, and I can only buy the same record so many times. But, I mean, that's definitely something I'm into if they have, like, you know, live shows from that era as a bonus disc or something like that. I mean, plus they're classic records. I'm, I'm interested. Yeah, I think they're going to do the same treatment for Master of Puppets. Nice. And uh, if that if that's the case, logic dictates a remixed version of And Justice for All uh, in a box set version. <clears throat> if it's allowed to happen, who knows? It's funny, uh, not to go on about it, but. The first Speedball record that I did was produced by Steve Thompson, who engineered And Justice for All. And we were talking about the record at his house, and he had a dat tape of the mix that he did of the record that he preferred that was like, this is what the record was going to sound like. And then the band wanted to go with sort of like the Lars mix that they did, which sold massive and whatever. It's a good record, but I was so tempted to... Have that dat come yeah. home with me or yeah, try yeah. to get a copy somehow. I've never heard it, you know, but well, just knowing you had it, you know. There's a mix circulating somewhere, <clears throat> and I have it somewhere. Um, it's called No Justice for Jason, 
or Justice for Jason. What I've heard about that, though, is it's a bass player that recorded bass ah, on the track and okay. kind of mixed it in a bit. I don't know if it's actually Jason. Oh, okay. Um, don't 100% quote me on that, but I've heard that through the grapevine, you know. But in defense of the band, um, you do kind of get, like, what is it, um, studio head or whatever, where you just can't step back and look at, what you're working on, you, you maybe they just didn't give their ears rest when they were in mixing mode, and you know the layperson who doesn't go into studios, who doesn't step foot in a studio, doesn't know what that feeling is, and it's, it's crazy. Like you cannot, you can't uh, determine what is what is good and what is bad, and what sucks and what's good. Like that's why people can sit there and go, "Oh man, that sucks," but. You can't fucking gauge after, like, spending two weeks in a studio. Listening to the same track, you know? I mean, they were also dealing with the loss of Cliff and that whole aspect, too. So, you know, who knows? Maybe we can ask Lars later, which I'm sure he would hate to talk about. That... I, will I shan't be bringing that up. No. <laughs> if I can get a, a, a photo for Instagram, that's about as much yeah. as I could probably get. But who knows if I'll be able to get that. Right. If I even see him later. I mean, I'll see him on stage. But, yeah, that would be nice. <laughs> Never on the ropes He is the time 